This evening we want to close our study of Philemon by doing what we have done throughout this study, looking at symmetries and also at narrative paradigms. It may surprise you to think of the last three verses, 23 to 25, in terms of symmetry and narrative paradigm, but I trust it will be obvious to you by the time you leave this evening. So we begin with uh, the name of this unit, if we put a label upon it, and it will be symmetrically opposed to the label that we put at a (coughs) unit at the beginning of this letter. So we're looking at relationships symmetrical between the beginning and the end. So for the end of this uh, epistle, we want to call these three verses the closure. And that stands in relationship symmetrically to the aperture, which was the opening of this epistle in verses 1 to 3. So we want to establish this pattern of symmetries from the beginning to the end. And so we'll ask, first of all, about the narrative venue in the beginning. In verses 1 to 3, what narrative venues do we have? Where is Paul? Where? And the venue is in Rome, all right? Is that the only narrative venue that we find in those first three verses? Randy? No. What's the other one? Uh, Colossae. Colossae. And we know that because of? Verse 2. Which tells us what about Colossae? doesn't say Colossae in that verse. Well, we went through that. (laughs) (laughs) We know that Philemon's house is in Colossae, do we not? So, all right, so we have two narrative venues in verses 1 to 3 in the aperture. uh, About verses 23 to 24, what narrative venues at the end of this letter do we find? Epaphras is called fellow prisoner or co-prisoner. What does that mean about the venue, the narrative venue? He's in Rome with Paul, who is also in Rome. And these greetings are being sent to you. Who is the you? Philemon is the you, which means there's another narrative venue in the closure. What other narrative venue is that? Colossi. Philemon is in Colossi. So, you'll notice the symmetry. We have the same narrative venue symmetries at the aperture and the closure. All right, what about the language that we find? Language at the beginning or at the aperture? Uh, 
The word beloved in verse 1 suggests what kind of language? It's language of affection, is it not? Yes, there is a affectionate relationship between Paul and Philemon. Now, there's also another type of language in verses, verses 1 to 3. Verse 2, fellow soldier or co-soldier. This is language of identification. For Archippus is identifying with the apostle in the spiritual warfare that the apostle himself is involved in. He is a fellow soldier. At the end, we find the language of affection again. What word would you find in verses 23 to 25 that suggests affection, the language of affection? Let's hold off on that one. That's more identification. Perhaps my. No, the language of greeting. The greeting suggests an affection between the apostle and those who are with him and Philemon once again. So we have affectionate language at the beginning and end. Uh, beloved greetings, and we have identification language at the beginning and end, co-soldier in verse 2, and co-prisoner or fellow prisoner in verse 23. Now, there's a final kind of language that appears in the beginning and the end. It occurs in verse 3. And then again in verse 25. What type of language do we find there in verse 3? Doxology. Not a doxology, but close. It is a benediction. This is the language of benediction. Wishing well. The same Language occurs, recurs in verse 25. But in addition to that benedictory language at the beginning and end, we also have this identification language again, which is synonymous. That is, it's absolutely identical. And what is the identical language of identification in uh, the beginning and end of this epistle. Fellow worker. Fellow worker or co-worker. The identification with Paul at the beginning and at the end. All right, now there's another pattern of symmetry here. And that refers to the characters. How many human characters do we have at the beginning, in the aperture, verses 1 to 3. 
5. And how many do we have in the closure, verses 23 to 25? 5 once again. So we have a symmetry of the number of characters in the beginning and ending of this epistle. Now we also have a chiasm, and we pointed this out when we examined uh, the broad structure of the letter uh, do you recall what that chiasm is in the aperture and the closure? Verses 1 to 3 and verses 23 to 25. All right, you'll notice that in both sections, both units, Christ, Jesus, Lord, Jesus Christ. It is a perfect chiasm. The name of the Lord Jesus, chiastically arranged at the beginning and and in precise mirror reflection. All right, now, this symmetry suggests that there may be some additional symmetrical structure evident in verses 23 and following. This is a little bit difficult to see in your English translation, but I've tried to arrange it uh, so that it'll kind of uh, jump out at you. Uh, There is a symmetry or symmetrical structure within verses 23 and 24. I've given it to you in the way that the Greek appears. I've translated the English in the order of the Greek words. So the first line is begins with a verb. It does, it's not in the English epiphras, but greets you epiphras. That's how the Greek reads. And then the uh, phrase concludes with co-prisoner my. So, a greeting, the personal pronoun you, then the name, Epaphras, and then co-prisoner, my. That's the first line of this potential symmetry. Then the last line, I'm skipping the middle for the moment, the last line is, greets you understood, the name, and in this case, we have Four names, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And then another co-word, only this time the co-word is co-workers, my. So you have a pattern here of a symmetrical line at the opening of verse 23, at the close of verse 24, and in between what is sandwiched. In what? In Christ Jesus. So that Christ Jesus is sandwiched between the ones giving greeting at the beginning of this unit, verse 23, and at the end of this unit, verse 24. So why, Epaphras, first? Why? This individual listed first 
at the closure of the letter. He's with Paul, but why list him first in a letter to Philemon? He's the closest person to Philemon in this list, is he not? For in fact, he had been in Colossae. They had been taught the grace of God by Epaphras, Colossians 4, 7. So he's first because he's the closest to Paul and would immediately resonate with Philemon in being in that first position. Well, then why is Luke last? If Epaphras is closest to Philemon, why is Luke last? Because he's closest to Paul. At this time, he is closest to Paul. All right, now let's think about some other uh, explanations for why there are these uh, lists and the order in which they appear. You notice in verse 24, the first in that verse is Mark and the last is Luke. Why does Paul list Mark first and Luke last? Well, you might say because they're writers of gospel, right? In fact, you might say Mark is first because he's the writer of the first gospel or the first one to write a gospel. That is the tradition, or that is one of the traditions, that Matthew was not the first gospel written, but rather Mark was. That is debatable. But this might, in fact, be a confirmation of that. And Luke would be last because he was a writer of a gospel, a synoptic gospel, and probably the last writer of a synoptic gospel. For the gospel of John was probably written later than the synoptics. So it is possible that Mark is first and Luke is last because they are gospel writers and they are first and last synoptically. There's another possibility. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, and in Colossians 4, verse 11, we find that Mark is a Jewish Christian. He is listed with those in Colossians 4, 11, those of the circumcision, as Paul puts it. Well, then, what about Luke? First in order is a Jewish Christian. Remember Mark's mother had a house in Jerusalem. It was in that house that the disciples were praying while Peter was in prison. And when he was released by the angel, he came to that house. And a little girl, Rhoda, was surprised by him at the gate. That was the house of Mark and his mother in Jerusalem, obviously Jewish Christians. 
What about Luke? Is Luke a Jewish Christian? No, he's a what? He is a Gentile Christian, as Colossians 4.14 suggests when compared with Colossians 4.11. Namely, Paul lists those of the circumcision in verse 11 of Colossians 4 and thereby implies that those who follow in the lists after verse 11 of Colossians 4 are Gentiles. Luke would be one of the Gentiles. That's another possibility for the order of Mark first and Luke last in uh, this section of verse 24. Now, there's another possibility. How does Mark appear in Paul's narrative? In other words, if you think of the narrative of the life of Paul, how does Mark fit in? Early. How early? What what context? First missionary journey. So Mark is part of the core group of that first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. What about Luke? He is one of the last companions of the Apostle with respect to the mission to the Gentiles, as Mark is one of the first of the companions with respect to the mission to the Gentiles. All right, so uh, there are, in fact, distinguishing patterns here which can explain the order uh, for the uh, names on this list in verse 24. All right, now let's think about the narratives in the names. What is the obvious narrative characteristic about all of these names, all five of them? Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. They are all believers. Ostensibly, they are all Greek names. They are all known to Paul and Philemon. They are all known to Philemon. These are all individuals with whom Philemon is familiar. Well then. What distinguishes the name in verse 23 from the names in verse 24? Or is there any distinction? These are all names known to Philemon. Is there any distinguishing feature between the names? Patras went around and traveled with him all over 
The first one. Mm, we're thinking of Philemon. Epaphras was from Colossae. So he's what? With relationship to Philemon? Native. Not a native necessarily. Macedonian. No, he's not a Macedonian. <laughs> he is known <clears throat> to Philemon face to face. Our starts. Face to face. What about Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke? Thinking of Philemon now. Does Philemon know any of those four face to face? No, he does not. He knows them only by repute or by report or by reputation. They are all named in Colossians 4, 10, 12, and 14. But they are not known to Philemon by face, that is, face to face. He knows about them because he's been told about them but he doesn't know them because he's met them face to face. So that is the distinction uh, which divides Epaphras from the other four. Now, what about the narrative of Epaphras? He was known to Philemon in person, and in fact, I should correct a misinterpretation interpretation that you may have derived from an earlier comment he made. He is a native of Colossae. In Colossians 4.12, Paul says he is one of your own, meaning he is one of the Colossians, that is, born and raised there. As I alluded to earlier, he had taught the grace of God or preached the grace of God to the Colossians in Philemon's house. That's in Colossians 1.7. Obviously, that meant that he was teaching the grace of God to Philemon as well. Now, he's close to Philemon because of his Colossian association. Is he close to Philemon because of his conversion? Obviously, Epaphras had to have been Converted, he had to have heard the gospel too. Where did Philemon hear the gospel? How did Philemon come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Ephesus. At Ephesus, when Paul was there for nearly three years and preached in that school of Tyrannus. That's our suggestion as to how Philemon came to know about Christ and about the apostle Paul. Is it conceivable that Epaphras also was converted in Ephesus? That he too heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul in the same city that Philemon heard it. And together, having been converted in the same place, having been converted by the same person, namely Paul the Apostle, they, and being from the same town, they returned to Colossae, I'm not saying that they were necessarily converted at the same time, but they returned to Colossae and then were used as co-laborers or fellow workers 
in the gospel of Christ in that city. Now, one other thing about Epaphras here, as we're thinking about the narrative pattern or the narrative story behind these names. He is a co-prisoner with Onesimus. Onesimus is in prison with Paul. That's how he has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Epaphras is in prison with Paul. He is labeled such in verse 23. Why does Epaphras receive the first mention at the end of this letter? Philemon would regard Epaphras as he regarded Onesimus, a servant of Paul in his imprisonment. We've already been through, in this epistle, Paul's description of how Onesimus has been helpful to him in his imprisonment. And now, Epaphras is also in that imprisonment with Paul. Is he then, likewise, a servant of the apostle in his imprisonment? In other words, Epaphras mirrors Onesimus to Paul and Philemon, a servant to the apostle and to the man in whose home he had preached the grace of God. Epaphras listed here first would be a powerful narrative signal that he, like Onesimus, is in the role of a servant to the Apostle Paul, even as Onesimus was a servant to Philemon. Epaphras then becomes, shall we say, a narrative cameo, a narrative mirror of Onesimus, who is, of course, the major subject of this letter. The reminder at the end in that name of the one who had preached the grace of God, now being co-prisoner and co-servant, co-slave of the apostle, if we may be uh, extreme in our language, and therefore resonating in that way with Philemon as he reads this letter or hears this name read from this letter. All right, so Epaphras has the first position for a number of suggestive possible reasons, reasons which would echo in the apostle's own heart, in his own mind, and in Philemon's heart, and in his mind. It would draw Philemon to consider seriously what Paul is saying in this letter as well as how he's closing this letter. Ah, yes, Epaphras, I remember him well. And I remember him now as he is serving Paul, now as he is the slave of the apostle, even as Onesimus was my slave. It brings the two images together. But what about the names which were only names of repute? 
What about Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke? Why are they placed in the order in which they are placed? Mark and Aristarchus, then Demas and Luke. Well, first of all, if we go back to that Colossians 4.10 passage, we notice that Mark and Aristarchus are listed as of the circumcision. They are Jewish Christians. So they are together here, possibly because they are Jewish Christians. Demas and Luke are distinct from that circumcision in verse 11, chapter of Colossians 4, where they are listed in Colossians 4:12 and 14. So Demas and Luke are listed together because they are Gentile Christians. It is conceivable that the order here has to do with whether they were Jewish born and raised or Gentile born and raised. Well, focusing now on Mark, what narrative about Mark particularly or potentially would be poignant to the Philemon Onesimus drama? Why list Mark first of those whom he knows only by report or reputation? What narrative about Mark would be particularly poignant to the Philemon Onesimus drama. And? Very good, Marge. Very good. Keep going. You're not done. You've done very well, but you've only got a C so far. Come on, work it up to an A+. No, no, come on, Marge. What happened after Mark left him? Eventually. Eventually? He came back. He came back. He was what? Restored. Restored? Give me another reword. Reinstated? Not reinstated. Your husband is giving you a clue. That's correct. Listen to your husband. <clears throat> he... You are a duo, right? You, you are, you are a tandem couple. Very good. All right. You think alike. Uh, <clears throat> okay. He is reconciled. So Mark deserts Paul and is later reconciled to Paul. So why is Mark first here? Yes. Yes. Exactly, exactly. So the potential poignancy here is that Mark is first here because he will remind Philemon of the desertion reconciliation paradigm which occurred between Paul and Mark. The same paradigm that has existed between Onesimus and Philemon. He comes first on this list in order to raise that narrative sequence. In other words, that narrative paradigm. All right. Now, the second thing to note here, and that reconciliation, incidentally, between Mark and Paul 
is in Colossians 4.10 and in 2 Timothy 4.11. In two places, this reconciliation is underscored because Mark is welcomed by Paul. Mark is commended by Paul after he had deserted him on that first missionary journey. Now, notice another thing. He is called here in verse 24, as the other four are, a co-laborer. Co-laborer. Who's called a co-laborer in verse 1? Philemon. An identification of role. In other words, he like you, Mark like you, Philemon, is a co-laborer. In other words, Paul is saying, Mark's narrative with me, that is with me, Paul, mirrors Onesimus' narrative with you, that is you, Philemon. Mark first here would touch the heart of Philemon with potential tenderness towards that reconciliation which would overflow to the runaway slave whom the apostle is sending back. Ah, yes. Paul received a returning runaway and reconciled with him. My returning runaway is coming and I need to think of reconciliation with him. There are powerful narrative paradigms in these names. These names are not just listed here incidentally. These names are listed here intentionally. The apostle is playing upon drama, playing upon relational drama, playing upon mutual identification drama, playing upon the in Christ Jesus drama. But there's a richness here beyond just reading Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Which brings us to Aristarchus. He too is called a co-prisoner with Paul, but not here in this letter. It is in Colossians 4.10. But this letter is one of the prison epistles, as Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians are. Here, he is called a co-laborer with Paul. Verse 24, as all four are called co-laborers, but we underscore the fact that it belongs to Aristarchus as well as the others. Now, where is Aristarchus from? He was from Thessalonica, Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Thessalonica is in Macedonia, Acts chapter 19, verse 29. He joined Paul on his third missionary journey and was present with Paul in Ephesus, Acts chapters 19 and 20. We suggested that Philemon first heard the gospel and was converted in Ephesus. Aristarchus was there. Aristarchus identifies with Philemon in relation to Paul and Onesimus because he identifies with Philemon in terms 
of the place in which he was converted. Aristarchus then recalls the narrative of Paul and Philemon and himself, Aristarchus, in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major part of that third missionary journey, particularly as it is identified with the characters in this epistle. Philemon, Paul, and Aristarchus. Now that we come to Demas. We noted that he, along with Luke, is a Gentile Christian. He is also probably a native of Thessalonica, which is the reason he's listed after Aristarchus. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says that he has gone to Thessalonica. That is, Demas has gone to Thessalonica. He hailed from the same hometown as Aristarchus, who precedes him here. And he, too, likely joined Paul's third missionary journey, as Aristarchus did, likely or probably in Ephesus along with Aristarchus. Now, in addition, in addition to Aristarchus and Demas, Paul and Philemon, as well as Luke, were associated with Ephesus. Now, one other thing. He is mentioned beside Luke here in Philemon, verse 24. Demas and Luke. He is listed beside Luke in Colossians 4:14. Demas and Luke. He is a co-laborer with Paul in the gospel at this point, as this verse 24 indicates. But he deserts Paul because of his love for this present age or this present world, as 2 Timothy 4.10 details. There is a different narrative about Demas in 2 Timothy 4 than there is in the narrative reflected here in Philemon 24. What does this mean? There's a different narrative. Not only does it mean that Demas was not a true believer, he is ostensibly a true believer, but he is a fraud, he is a charlatan, he is a fake, because he deserts the gospel for the present world. He loves the present world more than the world to come, which is the context of that Second Timothy 4, 8 through 12 text. <clears throat> so there's a different narrative here. There's a different story in Demas's own career. And this means that Colossians was written before Philemon. The names are well known to Philemon when Paul writes this letter. They are well known to him because Paul has already written the letter to the Colossians. And Philemon, therefore, was written before Second Timothy and the other pastorals because we know 
that between Philemon and 2 Timothy, Demas's story has changed. He had become what he was at heart already, an apostate. Only now he's an open public apostate. He was a hidden apostate before, very much like Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot becomes an open apostate. He was always an apostate. He was only a pretender. So, Demas's narrative has changed from an adherent of the gospel to an apostate from the gospel. But this incident, this combination of Luke and Demas in Colossians and Philemon, this incident, so contrary to what Paul reports in 2 Timothy 4, indicates that 2 Timothy 4 was written after this incident of Philemon 24. And that is an argument for a second imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. That is, that he was released from this imprisonment in which he is. In Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, he was released from it. Demas was with him. He went elsewhere, perhaps to Spain. And then he writes the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus, and something is different. Demas is not with him in prison. Demas is not with him at all. Demas has deserted and apostatized. It is one of the strongest narrative demonstrations of the fact that the pastorals were written subsequent to the prison epistles or subsequent to all the other ordinary epistles of the Apostle Paul. Randy. Um, these four guys, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, they were in Rome with Paul, or were they also in prison with Paul? You may have told me this, Dr. God. No, they're, they're in Rome. They're, they have access to him in prison. Okay. So they're familiar with him. Uh, <clears throat> notice that they are my fellow workers who greet you. So they are present with him in his prison circumstances, whether they are prisoners themselves. Epaphras is a co-prisoner, okay, as Onesimus is. But these four may have been those who were allowed to go and come while Paul was under that house arrest in Rome. All right. Um, well, we'll take our uh, break and we'll come back and talk about Luke and the concluding uh, symmetry of this epistle. <clears throat> Ready to resume. We come back to the last name in the list of four in verse 24, and that's the name of Luke, <clears throat> the writer of the third gospel, of course, known to Philemon by reputation as the beloved physician, Colossians 4.14, where the Greek word for beloved, agapitos, is the same word that is used 
for Philemon in verse 1 of this epistle. Interesting that the last person named is one who is known to Philemon as a beloved friend of Paul. Even as Philemon has been labeled a beloved friend or brother of Paul in verse 1 of this epistle. You'll notice that in these narratives that I'm suggesting for these names, there are mirror paradigms, there are mirror relationships, there are reflections. So it's more than a name. There's a story in the name. There's a relational story in the name. Not only the relational story of being in Christ Jesus, or ostensibly so in the case of of Demas, but a relational story story which draws their narrative stories together, unites them, interfaces their narrative dramas. So there's power in these names. It's narrative power. It's living power. It's the power of human lives, which were touched by the apostle, uh, ostensibly touched by Christ in the case of Demas, powerfully touched by Christ in the, name, in the case of the others besides Demas. So here, this, this last named Luke, the dear and beloved physician who attended the apostle while he was in prison, attended him perhaps even on that fourth missionary journey, attended Paul and became his chief biographer and the chief historian of the early Christian church because he writes the first history of the early Christian church, namely the book of Acts. All right, now, the narrative affection of Paul for Luke is mirrored also then in Philemon. He draws these individuals into the same circle of reference with himself, which is a circle of dear relationship personally and profound relationship spiritually, particularly for those in this list who are truly and sincerely and genuinely in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it is clear that Philemon knows about Luke as the biographer, as the historiographer, and as the companion of Paul from the second missionary journey on when he joined the apostle and was present with him in Ephesus when Philemon was converted, even to the imprisonment in Rome. That is, Philemon knows some of the narrative of Acts chapter 16 to 28, a narrative which Luke will record when he writes the inspired Acts of the Apostles. All right, now, there's another reason to suggest that Philemon is written before Second Timothy. And that is the fact that Demas is with Luke and Paul here, as he is in the letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14. But in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, only Luke is with me. 
Note, every place Demas occurs, he is with Luke in the New Testament, except 2 Timothy 4.11. In Colossians 4.14, in Philemon 24, Demas and Luke. Demas and Luke. In 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with Paul, which means Luke is not with Demas. Demas and Luke, but not Demas now in 2 Timothy 4.11. He has deserted the apostle, and he has deserted the beloved physician as well. Demas is a deserter. He is a lover of the present evil age because he has at root an evil heart, a heart which was never genuinely turned from its evil disposition and delight in this world. So why did he attend Luke and Paul? For the sake of status, for the sake of, of position, for the sake of popularity, for the sake of acceptance. There are all kinds of reasons people attach themselves to Christianity merely to adhere, but not to believe, not to devour, not to hunger and thirst, only to dabble and to play. But you do not and you dare not dabble and play with the living God. Demas did, and eventually his true colors were displayed. He has deserted me because he loves the present evil age. Now, there is one final concluding symmetry in this letter, and it is the benediction of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will notice... The end of the epistle is as the beginning of the epistle in verse 3. Verse 25 as verse 3. A pronouncement of the never-ending grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A benediction of the never-ending grace of the Lord Jesus Christ upon those who love him in sincerity. In Colossae, in Rome, in Linwood, unto the uttermost parts of the earth, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You have any questions or comments? Yes, David. Uh, this is a little tangential, I grant you, but... Uh, the affection that the Apostle Paul had for Luke, uh, in contrast, the beloved position, the rest of the Word of God is, except for one spot, pretty derogatory towards lawyers. <laughs> but in Titus 3.12, and I have searched the Scriptures, in Titus 3.12, the Apostle Paul says, Send for Zenos, the lawyer, with all haste. And so I just raise that to my defense. 
Your defense is noted, Counselor. And we commend you for, we trust, being diligent as Zenas the lawyer was. And we're delighted you're able to be here with us again. Any other tangential questions or otherwise? I mean, they can be self-serving too. Yes, Pete. The scripture's not too happy with doctors either. But Luke is a doctor. That is true. There are some scoundrels amongst the doctors in the Bible, yes. Religious leaders as well weren't too Your hand, popular. Your hand was not up, Brother Randy. There, there was a hand at the back of the room. If you wish me to recognize you, which I will do gladly, you will put up your hand, please. Um, since you were talking about Jesus, do you, is there any indications you think in Second Timothy that uh, if we're talking about a second imprisonment, I mean, this is maybe speculative, that, that the Neronian persecution seemed to be more intense than the house arrest that Paul had at the end of Acts. Uh, do you think there might be anything to that that might have uh, said this is too much for me? That's an interesting thought. The, the comment was that uh, Demas couldn't stand the heat of the Neronian persecution. Um, <clears throat> yes, but there, there were hundreds, if not thousands, if you believe the early martyrologies of Christians who did not uh, apostatize in the face of that horrific persecution. Um, so, uh, once again, uh, this this heart of unbelief is that at the root of Demas's character, which I think is behind the language of the apostle in Second Timothy four, that loving the present world is a is an evil heart of unbelief, and obviously persecution would put that to the test, and consequently. Um, it would draw out the apostate state of that consciousness uh, rather rather dramatically. I mean, here we are uh, in 2015 facing the, the question of horrific uh, Christian martyrdom as well, and we are asking ourselves the same question, what would we do? Uh, would we identify ourselves as Christians and be shot in the head uh, instantaneously? Or would we say that we were Muslims and then somebody would still shoot us because we couldn't recite the proper word of the Quran? Uh, you know, these, this, this type of, of uh, pressure that the Neronian persecution brought upon the Christians in Rome in 64 to 66 AD, uh, you know, it's, it's alive and well in our world and there are Christians perishing under it, even as we speak. God help them, and us as well. Yes, your hand was up. I recognize you. Thank you. There was a lot of people reinstated who didn't uh, confess. We were reinstated to the church later, and Demas could have done that as well, couldn't he? Well, uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to say that the inspired record tells us essentially all we need to know about Demas. 
And the last word on Demas is he's deserted Paul and the gospel and the hope of the return of Christ in 2 Timothy 4.8. That, that final word, I think, is a final declaration, even as the final word about Judas Iscariot is his suicide. So in other words, it's not incidental that the last word about Demas is the word of departure from the gospel. So, so, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's any subsequent narrative or subsequent story to be considered. <clears throat> this, is, this is the unforgivable sin uh, in part, namely the sin against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness at all. All right, well, um, this concludes the epistle to Philemon. Thank you for your attendance, and we will close in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear and understand your word in greater detail because of the riches that are there, these treasures which are hidden in Christ Jesus, our Savior. The Son of God, the Son of your love, your beloved indeed, who gave himself for us as for Philemon and Paul and Onesimus and others listed in this epistle, who drew them into his own drama, into his own narrative, who drew them out of their story of death and damnation into his story of life and eternal justification. We are awestruck, Lord, by the beauty of this letter and the loveliness of Paul's tender approach to Philemon and the wonder of Onesimus' own regeneration and conversion. We bless you that you are still the God who turns the hearts of those who love darkness to love light, who out of the resurrection grace of the Lord Jesus transfers them out of the kingdom of death into the kingdom of eternal life. We do praise you that you still are at work. And we ask you, Lord, to bless the fruit of the gospel and those who bear it in truth and genuine sincerity, that you will bless them in their labors. And for those who hear and believe, that they may persevere even unto the end. We thank you for that grace which has been with our spirit and with the spirit of all those, even from the time of Paul and Philemon, the spirit that needs everlasting life, the spirit that needs eternal comfort, the spirit that needs eternal rest. It is the spirit of Christ. We hunger and thirst for it. We ask you to bless us richly through this summer season, for we lay our hearts before you and our minds before your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.